0: Welcome to This is Social Work, I'm Matthew, Social Work England's Regional Engagement Lead for the North West of England. In this series we're focusing on the professional standards, the six standards our social workers must know, understand and be able to do as part of their role. The professional standards are specialists to the social work profession and apply to social workers in all roles and settings across England. In this episode we're focused on standard three which is be accountable for the quality of my practice and the decisions I make. Today, I'll be joined by George, who's a Lead Forensic Social Worker, and Callum, who is an Adult Safeguarding Team Manager. They share their own experiences of decision-making, particularly in relation to safeguarding, and discuss how social workers identify risk indicators and cope with the demand that this places on their own well-being. We hope you enjoy the conversation. going to make a start and make a start with some introductions so george can i come to you first and just ask you to introduce yourself and to give a bit of background as well about your social work career
1: okay so my name's georgina adams um i've been um qualified as a social worker since 1993 so it feels a very long time um and for all of my social work career i've worked in devon um, for devon county council uh, my background predominantly has been around um, children's social work, so the first kind of 25-30 years of my career I've worked in social work, whether as a social worker, as a team manager, chairing um, child protection meetings, or as an independent reviewing officer. I've also worked for a safeguarding board, I've worked there for a few years. Um, and managed the child protection service in Devon for a few years as well. Well, as part of that career actually. I'll go back a bit really. I, I worked for the emergency duty team, and up there I was predominantly a children's social worker. But I also did my AMP training, so I did some work there, um, working as an AMP in mental health services. But I've taken quite a, a different career change very recently, and that I've become the lead social worker for the secure services here at Langdon Hospital in Devon. So we we are a, a, a secure hospital with roughly about 110 patients, all male patients. Um, And we have uh, four wards that are medium secure wards, two wards which are low and one ward which is open. And I also have, as part of my role across the secure directorate, although I line manage seven social workers here in the hospital, we have social workers that are also working in our community forensic team and our liaison and diversion team. And I take a responsibility, not for line managing them, but providing some professional supervision, Um, when needed and also making sure that their social work voice is heard across some of those agencies where they're working um, particularly when they're in the police and also making sure that their CPD is up to date and they're thinking about some of those social work issues and they come to some of our forums and come to our training so although I only kind of line manage seven social workers in our hospital I have a kind of broader role across the secure directorate here.
0: Perfect, thanks George. Um, Callum, can I come to you?
2: So, my name is Callum Titley, and I work for Stockton Borough Council. So I qualified as a, as a social worker back in 2009, and I've worked for Stockton Borough Council ever since. Prior to doing my social work degree, I just want to give you a bit of background about myself. So my kind of interest in, in working with people and you know, empowering people to kind of achieve and you know contribute to society came from um, doing two years volunteering in America, where I was living and working with adults with learning disabilities. Um, and it was that experience that really kind of demonstrated to me, um, you know, just regarding kind of human worth and the fact that, you know, we've all got strengths that we can contribute to society. Um, so that really kind of shaped my career in, in like I said, wanting to work within social care. Um, and once that experience came to an end, I found myself applying to kind of study social work. Throughout my studying, I did statutory placements within children's services. So I did a um, a placement within a, a child protection team, but my last placement was with, with adult services here in Stockton. Um, and since that time, I was lucky enough to become employed as a social worker in an adult assessment team. Before then developing through um, you know, being able to do my practice educations awards, my best interest assessors uh, award. I then transitioned into our safeguarding area. Um, and since working in the adult safeguarding team, I, I've been the team manager of the adult safeguarding team here in Stockton uh, for the last seven years. I started as a team manager in the, in the safeguarding team right when the CARE Act was implemented. So, you know, Straight away, I had that um, responsibility, along with kind of the other managers and, and senior management, around embedding the changes into practice that that came from the, the the Care Act. I was actually successful in now being appointed as the dedicated safeguarding lead officer, which is going to be a little bit of a change in that I won't be directly responsible for managing. The day-to-day operational practice here in stockton but i'll be more responsible for the um the work that is shaped by our adult, adult safeguarding board um and the assurance work that's required as as part of um being part of that board um as well as the Embedding the learning from things like safeguard and adult reviews, etc. So my role is going to be slightly different moving forward, but still very much uh, within the the adult safeguarding area. What I would say is, you know, I'm, I I live here in Stockton. I'm proud to work for Stockton. They've they've invested in me, um, and you know, I, I I'm I'm like I said, I'm I'm proud to serve the the people of this borough.
0: Yeah, and I mean similar similar to.
2: Yeah, Callum, I,
0: I only ever worked for one local authority. So before Social Work England, I only ever worked for Cumbria County Council and was really proud to work for Cumbria County Council. It's the area I grew up in, area where I still currently live. And it's only now that I stepped out to work for Social Work England that I, I've made that move away from from an authority in an area that I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of. So certain similarities there. So today's focus is really professional standard three, which is, be accountable for the quality of my practice and the decisions I make now professional standard free is the biggest it's got 15 points for me professional standard free is a lot of the sort of day-to-day work that social workers do because it talks about things like working within legal and ethical frameworks it talks about evidence-based practice it talks about assessments talks about working within multidisciplinary teams talks about record record keeping Um, so that's the kind of for me for a lot of social workers that might be listening to this is their day-to-day work standard free also talks a lot about risk talks a lot about risk assessments and responding quickly to dangerous situations so when we were thinking about standard free we had to narrow down the 15 points otherwise this podcast would be a day long but um that's why we sort of narrowed it down to that sort of safeguarding perspective which is why we reached out to yourselves so who've got that experience. Because I think, and we've already started to talk about it a little bit, social workers continue to take the lead in safeguarding in both adults and children. I think the landscape's changed, and I think legislation's changed significantly over the last few years. Callum on the same, thinking about the, the, what, what the Care Act's done for safeguarding adults, I think that was a significant change for the whole system. But I think it's an incredibly demanding area of practice. It's a really challenging area of practice, but I think it's an incredibly important one. It's also potentially a really high profile area of practice as well. And it fits into the idea that social workers' primary role is is around public protection. And for us as a regulator, that is also our primary role. We have been established with a primary role around public protection. And we also want to raise the standards of social workers across England so that people receive the best possible support um, when they might need it. And that's our role and function as as a regulator. And could ultimately, society decided really that social work as a profession carries that significant risk, carries that significant importance, that it should be a regulated profession, again, why Social Work England's in existence and why social work has been a regulated profession for a number of years now. And I think that helps sort of emphasise the importance of social work and the importance of the work that social workers do. But I think it also it shows that social workers uh, social workers on a daily basis have standards to meet and uphold, but they also have got to comply with legislation and policy and guidance and there's a lot there for social workers to understand. And I think that's why your new role column around that embedding some of that in, in systems and embedding that in practices, those types of roles are really important to support social workers. If we drill down a little bit more into the standard 3.2 focuses around sort of using information from a range of appropriate sources, including supervision to inform assessments, to analyze risk, there's that word risk, and to make professional decisions and judgments. And I think just coming to, and I'll come to you first, George, around what's, what's your experience really around doing that? Because I think on paper, that sounds really difficult. How do you absorb all that information to inform decision-making, and particularly particularly over the last 12, 15 months that COVID has been here, and I think that's shifted how social workers have been able to do that.
1: Yeah, I suppose the thing that really jumped out at me was what you were saying about the need to balance balance that public protection. You know, I work in a in a secure hospital with patients, and that's it's quite a niche role, isn't it? Working in a hospital, it's very it's a very very special role. Probably a lot of people don't really know what social workers do. You know, in a in a in a secure setting, really. Because you know, essentially, we are working with people. If you look at kind of you know uh, our prison, our male prison populations, there is that preponderance, isn't there, of childhood trauma and mental illness. So the people in our, in in the hospital I work in, um, you know, the patients that are here, patients or service users, whichever, there's always a bit of a debate about which language to use. Really, you know, are some of our most disadvantaged and oppressed um, and traumatized people that we're working with, you know, every every day. But in the work here, what we're always thinking about, which is what friends and social workers do, is about balancing that public protection, um, because, you know, some of our patients here have um, committed very serious crime, but also thinking about their own right to as service users. And we're also constantly trying to kind of promote their quality of life working in partnership with all the kind of professionals here. It's really key here. The, multi, the multidisciplinary working is really, really key here as, as part of the work in terms of trying to help that kind of recovery model. Because social workers here are that bridge into the, back into the community, into you know, living outside of the hospital, and it plays a key part of that. So we're there constantly assessing and managing risk. Every day it's about assessing, managing risk, whether it's about here in the hospital and how the hospital is managed and how patients are in the hospital, or whether it's about patients going out into the community and being discharged into the community when we're thinking about some of our Care Act responsibilities. Also thinking all the time about the legislation that we work with and about our policy that we work with, you know, it's very complicated trying to manage those legal frameworks and at the same time balancing, protecting the rights of different people, you know, whether it's our patients here, whether it's about the victims, Um, whether it's like that public protection and whether it's about our you know the family and friends that are are, you know uh, are still part of our our patients lives. Callum if there's
0: any points that you wanted to pick up there or just sort of coming in in around your experience around that that assessment I think because it is quite complex isn't it and George has described a really complex picture there but I think that that's a reality there's no getting away from from the fact that there is complexity there and just sort of your your experience of that and how you've maybe navigated that.
2: Yeah, um, I almost feel as though social workers, they're in effect, need to be a, a walking encyclopedia these days, the amount of knowledge that they need. You know, whilst I think, you know, social workers have a very skilled in perhaps how they communicate with service users, you know, how they apply that person centred approach, that strengths based approach their practice about having conversations it's all the other stuff around that that they have to learn within the profession in order to meet the the, the the statutory duties that the legislations hold the local guidance that might be applied for example in my area safeguarding all the guidance that's produced under our Safeguard and adults board understanding the roles of partner agencies and what part they can play in in the system it can be a complete minefield at times you know the the core message i try and deliver to my staff is about defensible decision making as long as you know if your if your decisions are defensible even if that decision ends up being the wrong decision or you know as long as you're able to defend it at that point in time that is a is a key message i always try and give to to my staff you know, we, we've got the six core principles that we work to as well. So we try and embed them into our practice as well, you know, and, and you know, some of them principles are, are second nature to the social workers, particularly empowerment. You know, we might be dealing with risk and working towards how we can keep that person safer or how we can, you know, risk manage the, the situation they're facing. But it's all, it's, it's trying to ensure that we don't, necessarily create dependencies and, and do the doing it's you know it it's very much about i think you know good outcomes to me is where we've been able to empower someone to, to take control some of the other principles particularly like the partnership arrangements we can sometimes see many dilemmas in practice particularly when you've got kind of like conflicting opinions between agencies you know there's certain agencies that might be more risk adverse than others And it's how you kind of balance all that, but at the same time, still able to work together for the the people that we're serving.
1: What it really is key for me here in this hospital is, you know, that we are very, the stuff that you just talking about, Callum, about that being very person-centred, talking about that empowerment. Very much here, as you can imagine, in a hospital, we've got a very strong medical model here, you know, and about being able to recognise about, you know, what's what's strong about people rather than what's wrong with people and and really recognizing that actually people even though they're in a, an, in a in a secure setting that actually still there's still a lot of good things there that can happen I was just thinking about some things you were saying about how we have to know how much you have to juggle in terms of your knowledge isn't it And it's really clear that isn't it about when you think about the legislation there are so many aren't there bits of legislation that we're always trying to juggle at the same time and that's where supervision is so key isn't it about trying to really help with that some of that reflective practice isn't it to think about some of the decisions that we're making to think about some of those areas of of risk isn't it And really using some of that evidence-based stuff that you were talking about Callum isn't it to really think about those defensible decisions that we were making
0: in all of this we've got the policy the guidance the legislation and all those things that we've all been describing but at the centre has to be a person and he is a person isn't it? and I think whether that's a child or an adult I think always remembering that I think is, is so important for social work practice. And I think that's that the that relationship-based approach that I'm, I've always been really passionate about. It's essentially why I come into social work practice. And I think there's, there's a danger isn't there that when there's all this going on there's all this policy guidance legislation there's all this risk there's all this pressure from other professionals pressure from families pressure from communities pressure from society all this going on to forget that there's a person right in the middle and that's the most important person to build a relationship with and build your decision making around
1: and and that's why I think the um, I mean having come from a background in children's and coming into my adult mental health it's been really um fantastic to 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 look at the adult safeguarding and the changes that have been made in terms of the legislation around there. And that really about making that, making safeguarding personal, isn't it? And actually having those conversations with people. And it's something I think that we, I think it's one of the things that social workers do very well is bringing it back to the person, isn't it? And I think because children's work so differently, where the, you know, the child is that focus and thinks about significant harm or what's in their best interest and coming into adults, where you're actually thinking about uh, balanced rights and responsibilities, aren't you? Needs and risks and keeping it person-centered, isn't it? Is a, is a different approach to have. I think it's a constant battle here in the hospital to be kind of saying, but actually, what does the person want? Do you know, what do they want from their safeguarding? Which for me is but it's very different, I think really.
2: It is. And and I'm, you know, I'm a strong advocate for the, you know, making safeguarding personal as that overarching principle of of safeguarding practice, because I actually saw practice prior to the CARE Act when it was under no secrets guidance. And and it was very process driven. And I, I saw firsthand situations where the adult's voice become lost. And it was about doing, you know, safeguarding doing as opposed to working with and keeping that person at the centre. And I think it's so important that we keep, you know, the, you know that person-centred aspect of our practice where the person is at the middle, where we are working towards their desired outcomes because, you know, sometimes even if there are presenting risks, you know, we I think need to be getting better at applying the positive risk-taking to, to, to practice and, and recognizing that, you know, under the CARE Act, there's, there's a duty to promote well-being, but there'll be occasions where someone's well-being potentially isn't impacted by what they're experiencing. And therefore, you've got that at times that ethical dilemma where you're balancing kind of rights under the Human Rights Act, for example, so that that, you know, respecting what they're telling you and what they want to happen. I think the make and safeguard got in person approach to that has enabled us to kind of do that more efficiently.
0: Did you feel a shift, Colin, when that when that was introduced? Because I was still in practice, I was working in Cumbria at the time where the care act was introduced, and I felt a shift. I felt some the system maybe took took a bit of a step back, but I think individual social workers maybe took a step back and thought, let's do things differently. Let's think about it in a different way.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I I think there was almost an immediate shift. But with that being said you know it, it 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 has taken i think a number of years for us to be able to to kind of evidence it well in practice you know when i say evidence well you know because we work under a, a statutory safeguarding board we ultimately have to provide assurance to into our kind of local safeguarding adults board and that is in, that includes data that includes audits multi agency audits and over time we've been able to I think develop our practice to be able to evidence that better I believe that you know it's it's always been happening but we're much more equipped with being able to I think evidence it now in practice so then when it comes to talking about your defensible decision makings for example the fact that we are able to evidence that better now means that I think we're 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 better protected as a statutory agency because as you as you alluded to matthew it's it's the one area of practice when you kind of refer to safeguarding that when something does go wrong you've got that safeguard and adult review duty, as is the same with the kind of serious case reviews when you're kind of talking about children you know it's the one area of practice that you are expected to to potentially look at what went wrong and and learn from that so I always think that there's this there is uh, an underlying fear at times, but coming back to what I said, if you're able to put it all together, evidence the principles, work to the legislation, quote that you work into the legislation, then for me it combined it, it brings about that defensible decision in your practice.
1: For us here, you know, although social workers take um, you know a, a lead in some of the safeguarding, it is also it's very much, isn't it, everybody's responsibility. The challenge here is to bring everybody on board with that and recognising what abuse is you know and I think we've come a really long way and made some real improvements about everybody kind of taking that on board and recognising that actually uh, doing work around safeguarding is I say is everyone's responsibility but it's also it's really necessary and it's not just someone else's responsibility you know it's for, for all of us and just valuing the importance of it and not being scared of it thinking you know what happens now if I raise something as an issue um because you know it, it can end up i think in a, in a kind of the environment that i'm in just feeling like it's one profession's responsibility so we've said so we've worked really hard to make it feel that we we all recognize when there are safeguarding issues and there is still i think a lot of challenges around that because you know you know if if there is a safeguarding issue between two patients and somebody maybe for example might be you know something happens and somebody might have to change a ward because of it we have to be mindful still of the other patients that's still around you know it's you can't just move somebody and expect that the safeguarding issue has gone because it's still it will still be there won't it but may impact on other patients but also recognizing that the person that might be the you know the alleged um the you know the, the alleged person that that's done the abuse that they still have their own care and support needs as well isn't it so you're constantly having to think about those things as well it's not just a of linear process is it it's much more complicated um,
2: than that it is like you said you know safeguarding is everyone's business we might hold that lead duty under the CARE Act and section 42 of the Care Act you know we are the lead agency but the way I apply that is yes we might take a coordinated approach but again coming back to the principles one of the core principles is partnership working and, and sometimes to make someone safer or achieve that person's desired outcome. We might have to link in and use legislation that falls under housing, or falls under environmental health, or you know we might be heavily reliant on the powers that the police are able to to apply. So, you know, I, again, I t- I totally agree with what you're saying there. I think sometimes, as a as a social worker who might hold the lead duty, it can sometimes come across that they're they're the, the sole person responsible for it. And we need to be prepared to challenge because actually that's not, that's not the case. And I think we often rely
0: on, on other agencies to, to identify and alert us to the risk. And I think that's quite, it's challenging, isn't it? Identifying a risk or identifying a potential safeguard is a challenge, isn't it? And I think there's a skill there in social workers working with those other agencies to understand the safeguarding process, to understand what risk means, to understand some of the potential warnings that may be there that need to be maybe, maybe investigated
1: we've done some work around what the difference is between trading and exploitation, because it's, you know, things can become, I think, normalised on a hospital ward. And so people need to be constantly aware of some of those things. That's why supervision is really good to kind of talk about and some of the kind of reflective practice discussions that we have as teams to kind of remind ourselves, actually, what is happening there? Is that actually about exploitation? Is there some grooming here? You know, we're constantly having to have some of those discussions to remind us that actually this could be a safeguarding issue, you know? So when you talk about somebody in safeguarding having capacity to understand the risk or harm you know sometimes people may not because they may not realize and un- rec- recognize that they've been groomed by somebody for example
0: yeah and it's really com- it's really complex isn't it and i think self neglects another area that's really complex the care act brought that under that safeguarding umbrella well, i'm keen to get your thoughts on that because you'll have experienced a lot of that
2: yeah and and obviously you know it's not that self neglect didn't happen prior to the care act it was just obviously you know put into legislation as a an abuse category what what i what i think that's brought about matthew is is a element of subjectiveness because it's the it's the one category that is isn't done to by someone else it's around that person and their behaviors and and you know how they're living and and at times the choosing to to kind of make potentially unwise decisions for example and you and what you find particularly from a partner agency perspective is you do get that degree of subjectiveness where things that to, to me as a social worker where it's about well-being and strength space and person-centered you get a lot of things labeled as self-neglect that for me as a social worker isn't self-neglect and and i think the approach we take here in 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 stockton aligns itself to to the the principle of proportionality you know we 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 always attempt a, a care management approach first where we offer assessment, you know, look to put services in for that person. Because what we found is that there was things being referred in as self-neglect where a partner agency was saying that there's all these risks. But then the actual person themselves was wanting support and it, and it, it was presenting itself as self-neglect because they just didn't have the right support in place.
0: That, that label then can kickstart some quite immediate action, can't it? Which in some circumstances isn't what that person wants. And I think sometimes taking that step back and having that more preventative approach is, is really key, isn't it?
1: And I think ne- neglect is always a really tricky issue, isn't it? Whether we're in your children's. But I just was interested, Calum, you are saying about how subjective it can be, can't it?
2: Yeah. And, you know, and, and cases where, you know, self-neglect is present and from a risk perspective it's you know it's clearly been identified as as something that we need to to kind of I don't want to say do something about but you know in terms of working with the person at times there's the need to build a relationship over a, a long period of time before you're able to make any inroads in in being able to support that person and 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 change the kind of situation for the better more often than not it's not an Area of practice that you're going to be able to address overnight. You can look to work in partnership to potentially reduce some of the risks immediately, but in order to make that ingrained change so that person's well being is going to continue to be promoted into the future, that takes a long time to, to achieve.
1: That's interesting isn't it? because that goes back to what Matthew was saying right at the beginning about the relational work, isn't it, of social work, and about how important that is, isn't it? And and you're right, isn't it? There is no quick fix, and sometimes I think there's some pressure from other agencies to have a quick fix, but actually those things do take time. And if we are going to follow some of those principles, you know, uh, from the capacity about. You know, about empowering people, isn't it? And proportionality and thinking about those, isn't it? Working in partnership, that takes time. And that's where the skills of social workers are really key, aren't they? About you know, the skills that they have in terms of kind of non judgmental, isn't it? And having that empathy and that real genuine working relationships to build something to bring about some change, isn't it? Positive change that the person wants.
2: Definitely, you know, how you referred to, to kind of social workers there, George, is exactly, you know, I'd i, I would 100% support that because, you know, they don't not necessarily see in it as a problem they'll still for me focus on strengths and you know still come at it from a, a perspective of you know trying to to kind of empower that person to see them strengths and, and contribute to their society etc
1: yeah and that's where I think working here is a, is a challenge isn't it because we are working every day with you know with with patients that are in a in a secure setting and thinking about them being discharged in the community and it is that real, as you said, right at the very beginning, Matthew, balancing that public protection, isn't it? And also the rights of families and victims and thinking about you know, the map of the public protection and how you manage all of that, but still maintain holding on to those, you know, the individual rights of that person and about what's best for them. Because what we hope here is that people can go back into society and make a contribution and go back to leading in, you know an ordinary life.
2: We often refer to putting services in place for people. Well, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, a response from a social worker is a is a service in its own right because of you know because of the values that uh, the are often upheld and and what they you know want to do in terms of like i said empowerment and and supporting the person to to kind of make change and contribute to society you know the amount of information that a social worker might be able to offload onto a person and and signposting and linking them in with their communities et cetera for me that is a service in its own right and I don't think it's always seen seen like that.
0: And I think sometimes that the the power of that relationship that between social worker and person I think can 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 offer lots, can it? Can offer, and if you build that relationship over a period of time, I think, and people that I've worked with w- within the past and felt that I was able to manage crisis in a different way because I'd built relationship up with that person and and been able to support them through that time, without chucking lots. Of services in, you know what I mean, and I think that, that that approach, the the input that a social worker can offer, I think can offer real power and value to that person.
1: I've just recruited quite uh, three or four new social workers who have been used to being working out in the community, and now suddenly are, and they've been working at homes under teams. I mean, they've been, you know, every day they've been, you know, eighteen months they've been in offices, and then now coming into a hospital. Obviously, as a hospital, we're open all the time, and they are coming in. Uh, which they're really enjoying actually being, you know, being part of a being part of a team again and coming into work. I mean, that's been for them one of the, the, the joys of working in a hospital is coming back to the real face-to-face work with people. Every day they're coming in and can build those relationships with those patients and service users. You know, every day it's about building some of those relationships. But at the same time, they're having some quite challenging conversations with patients about what that might be, about some of their insight into what's happened, what's what is available out there in the community. You know how we're going to balance, you know, some of their uh, meeting their needs, but with the, with the balancing the risk with, with other people out there. Being on the ward every day, I was just interested in, in about the about the. I think it was the point twelve, isn't it, in the standard around um, about dangerous situations, and we talk about that quite a lot. About going on the ward and about how you have to not be complacent being on the ward, that you've built a relationship with with a service user on the ward, but you're always still mindful of the risk that they may may present um and we you, you have to you know you could you know be quite easy to think well i have built that relationship i don't feel there's going to be any harm but you know people here are you know unwell um some of their behavior is unpredictable so but they're constantly kind of juggle some of those risks actually on the walls on a day-to-day basis
0: that's a seamless link george because that was my next point to bring up because we can't talk about safeguarding without talking about the crisis and the and the dangerous elements that comes with safeguarding referrals and safeguarding work and Safeguarding investigations and all the things that comes around it. Sometimes the impact that that can have on the social worker's own wellbeing, and I'm really keen to get people's thoughts on that around how you've managed it in the past, but I think how that might have changed over the last sort of 12, 15 months where maybe social workers haven't had that office space to come back to and reflect and debrief. Keen to get your thoughts on it.
2: We've slowly started to integrate back into some office based work. We are mo- moving toward a corporate stance in the in the near future where we're going to have a split between office-based working again but also continuing to work from home and you know in terms of the office based working practitioners are very keen to have that and have that coming together because the the importance of of peer support and and being able to offload on one another and get support around particularly a, a challenging circumstance you know whilst we've supported each other over the likes of Microsoft Teams and you know we've been able to make use of of virtual technology like we are using now that does not replace the the kind of social contact between peers and and you know how important that is in terms of being able to manage the the emotions that the the job can kind of provide. You talked about earlier about the impact of COVID. Safeguarding hasn't stopped. We talk about responding to to dangerous situations where there's risks etc. You know there there has been some partner agencies that that we work in partnership with that scaled back that didn't provide a. A service where they were going out to see people. My perspective, whilst we had to be very careful about, you know, our own safety, our own kind of health and well-being, we still needed to 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 kind of respond to safeguarding concerns. You know, how can you judge a situation over a phone call? You can't always. You don't know whether they they could be presenting duress. You don't get that visual perception where you're able to pick up on. Potentially other forms of of abuse or neglect, et cetera. So, you know, we very much from a you know people often ask me, you know, h- how has your practice changed during COVID? Well, it, in all honesty, it didn't.
0: Yeah, and I suspect you're you're the you're the same, George. I suspect your practice. Didn't judge
1: when I ke- when I came to the hospital it was kind of mid COVID and so for us the so- social workers are coming into the hospital we, you know most days they're coming in if they're writing tribunal reports and things and some of those things obviously they would stay at home but for the most part the social workers are here are, are on the wards I suppose the differences for them being is they're all in scrubs and goggles and masks, and that's quite different in itself coming down onto a ward, you know, it does even just in terms of, you know, it does present a bit of a barrier, I think, when you're having conversations with people. But what I'd also say is in terms of the stresses in the hospital, you know, when we've had periods of lockdown where patients haven't been able to have as much contact with family and friends, haven't been able to have any leave, you know, that, that can present quite a challenge, you know, with behaviour on the wards, because, uh, you know, people are obviously very stressed if they're having to isolate um, and stay in the hospital and so that can you know you know bring some safeguarding issues into the hospital I think really as is with staff it's very very difficult you know when you cannot go out isn't it.
2: It's interesting you refer to to, to that uh, George as, a, as an impact that you faced within the hospital because from a safeguarding perspective when kind of lockdowns were implemented we, we certainly saw spikes in Kind of like physical incidents between uh, residents in shared care settings. So obviously, with things like LD uh, day provisions and stuff shutting down, it meant that routines, etc., had all changed and. We did see spikes in terms of incidents being reported um, as, a, as a safeguarding concern.
1: Yeah, it, it, you know, it's a significant challenge, isn't it, when people can't go out, their routines have changed significantly, aren't they? And they are in a hospital where they can't leave, isn't it? Um, and although we've done lots of stuff about, you know, the team's calls with family and friends, you know, using the Internet to kind of, you know, to ensure that there is contact it's clearly not the same isn't it if you are used to your family coming in to visit but we weren't able to allow families and friends to come in and those kind of that's the thing is that we know those support networks are what keeps pe- people's mental health generally you know you know helps your well-being doesn't it when you are seeing family and friends and getting out and doing things isn't it that's what really helps your mental well-being not to mention the impacts on the staff you know who, who are struggling well staff have worked really hard to keep everybody safe, we need to keep our patients safe. And the biggest risk for the patients is actually us, the staff, bringing COVID in. It's a significant challenge still.
0: And you've touched it a few times, George, around just the importance of, of of good supervision throughout this and beyond. The importance of good supervision in social worker is is never going to change. But I think particularly through COVID, and I know it's changed. It's been online. It's been through Teams and Zoom. But I think in that just that good quality support for social workers to help navigate. Everything. Do you know what I mean?
1: Helen was talking about the peer support, and I would say here definitely as well. Because for me, I've got each social worker is on is on a ward, I, and I think my normal experience of working in a social work team is you're all in a room together, aren't you? And you're sharing the the work, you're sharing the knowledge, policies, procedure. You know, some of the difficult things and complexities, and you've got that peer support to manage it. Here, it's one social worker per ward. So you have a responsibility to have that social work voice on a a ward. So that peer support outside of that is really, really important. We have some social work forums that really help us with some of that.
2: Yeah, we, we've, you know, we've introduced a number of forums in terms of being able to support our staff, you know, ranging from reflective supervision sessions where kind of groups of people can come together to kind of reflect on, on different areas of practice. But, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, that supervision is an ever occurring thing. It isn't it isn't just something that's uh, a protected two hours every fortnight or every of every four weeks. It's an ever occurring thing. And I, and I definitely try and deliver that message to the staff I support. And And it's not just the supervision that I'm able to provide. It's the the, the supervision for me also includes that support from others, the peers there has been an impact on on some of that in terms of yes we can communicate via teams but it just doesn't replace that face to face contact just you know coming to and from an office where you were able to to kind of reflect and unwind before you enter back into your kind of home life you know that for me that's that's a big impact and and I and I firmly believe that that is something that is impacted almost everyone that I certainly manage at some point is that that work and 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 home life separation
0: and I think it's 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 such an interesting point to make and I think that I was just thinking there reflecting on my own practice because I I only ever worked in Cumbria which is a really rural county and I spent a lot of my time traveling so I would I would go and see one person then I'd have to travel 45 minutes to go and see another person that 45 minutes was incredibly valuable to sort of think about what happened, think about the things that I needed to do, think about the decision-making, thinking about the people I needed to talk to. And without that, and I'm, I'm the same, I've worked at home now for, since March and I finished work, I open that door and I'm back to being a dad. Yeah. So if you were to talk to social work students about safeguarding, what would be the one piece of advice you would give?
2: Don't be scared to make a decision. Keep the person at the centre of your practice at all times. Focus on their strengths whilst you might be dealing with an concern where risk has presented itself. Don't see that as a problem. I think, like I said, it's around promoting well-being and keeping that person at the centre and ensuring that your decision-making is defensible. You know, work to them kind of core principles. You won't go far wrong. Yes, you'll be stressed. Be prepared to be stressed. Um, but that's the nature of the beast in in this in this field of work and i think it's it's really important that we're able to build some emotional resilience to the to the stuff that we that we're faced with at times
1: well i suppose that the one overarching thing is about keeping that being which is what callum's already said really about being person centered isn't it but i suppose it's a bit of a reminder of some of that stuff around about recording i would say make sure that you have what you're doing is evidence based that you've got a good rationale for what you're doing and you're recording what you can do because what we all know in anything when you know when things go wrong and people look at the paperwork even if you've done it, if it's not recorded, it's it's it hasn't happened, has it? So there's something about being uh, being recording it. And I would say also really think about you know using some of those resources, uh, keeping your CPD up to date. And you know we are an evidence-based, critical thinking you know professional, aren't we? And so you have to constantly be holding that in mind. I think. So I use Twitter all the time. That's my really key thing. I would say go on Twitter would be my key thing because actually you can really keep up to date with all the latest research and stuff that's going on because thinking does change you love this Matthew I'm constantly saying to my team don't wait till November to update your GPD. and we introduce it in our team meeting to keep your people's learning up to date for people to bring something that's current in research constantly keeping your your thinking up to date I think really would be a key message for me
0: and um, the one that I'm going to add in is around decision doesn't have to just be made in isolation by yourself as an individual social worker and i think that's really important to, to, to always remember whatever stage of career or at however experienced you are linking to other colleagues linking to your manager linking to other professionals all those types of conversations will really help you to in, inform that decision it's not about passing blame and it's not about, about about not wanting to make the decision yourself so to end i just a really big thank you to both of you
2: no it's been a pleasure I've really enjoyed it and I think I'll be probably logging on to record this as a an example of CPD as well
0: we'll end on a plug to upload some CPD I'm more than happy with that thanks again to George and Callum for joining us today and sharing their personal experiences of social work so openly if you enjoyed the discussion and would like to continue the conversation with us you can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn using the hashtag this is social to share your thoughts You can also find out more about the professional standards on our website. Join us for our next episode where we'll be talking about standard 4, maintaining my continuing professional development. Thanks again and see you soon.